If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Maybe you've heard of Amy Johnson, the famous aviator who became the first woman to fly solo from London to Australia. But have you ever heard of Letitia Sage, Edith Cook or Winifred Brown? In her new book, Magnificent Women and Their Flying Machines, Sally Smith considers the contributions made by British women in the field of aviation. From ballooning and parachuting to piloting airships and fixed-wing aircraft. She spoke to Emily Briffitt about these aviation pioneers. When did British women first start getting involved in flight and aviation? Well, I think this is the most amazing thing. Um, Men didn't even think about it until, well, they didn't get going until the 1780s. In fact, it was two French men in 1783 when they finally got off the ground. It was in Paris and they were using Montgolfier balloon. It's literally hot, hot smoke, hot air from a real fire that lit paper and, and, and silk into a balloon and lifted them off the sky. And I think that was in 1783. And just 18 months later, a British woman, I mean, this is the amazing thing, Letitia Sage, um, she hopped into a balloon and flew across the London sky for nearly an hour and then landed in Harrow. And so really, British women were at the beginning, right at the beginning of flight. So could you, you spoke a little bit about Letitia Sage there. Could you perhaps tell her a little bit more about her story? Letitia, oh, she was a wonderful woman. Uh, All these women, I'd love to have met them because every one of them was a different character and they'd all make great sort of entertaining dinner party guests, that's for sure. Letitia Sage, she was brought up in the provinces. A lot of the research was really hard to find because these women are just unknown, which is the tragedy of the thing, but hopefully my book might change that. Anyway, and Letitia Sage was brought up in the provinces, went to London because she dreamt of being an actress. She was one of three sisters and she did her bit, Letitia. She got a small part, and the news- newspapers of the day said she was pretty hopeless. 
And while that was going on, her sisters, who were slimmer, more attractive, did incredibly well and were being acclaimed as great actresses. Then on top of that, both her sisters made really good marriages. And poor old Letitia married a haberdasher who lived in Cheapside, selling ribbons and goodness knows what. And just her, her life really wasn't going where she wanted. And the marriage broke up and she moved back to Covent Garden in London and was working backstage, still desperately home for a breakthrough, but getting a bit bigger, getting a bit older, and it just wasn't happening for her. I don't know how she did it, but she got very friendly with two quite wealthy guys who were interested in the theatre in London, and they were also interested in ballooning, and they were building their own balloon, and um, somehow she talked her way onto the basket. And I don't know how she did that, because there were a lot of other women who would have been very happy, I think, to have got that close to these two quite wealthy and very attractive men, really. But Letitia managed to do it, and she became their accepted partner to go up in the balloon with them. And I think possibly having a girl with them, they'd have liked because they were charging entrance to see the launch of the balloon, and it was becoming a money-making thing. So she was probably a bit of a mascot, a gimmick. But nevertheless, she was chosen, and she, she could go. So she was very pleased about that, and she whatever her nerves or anything, she agreed to do it. And they got onto the platform of this balloon. And I think this was in 1785. And it was too heavy. And this goes again, her character, because one they were too heavy. One of them had to get out. And one of the men, one of the partners got out. So in the end, Letitia and just one of the guys went up in a, for a balloon flight. And they took off and flew right across London. Incredible thing in those days. No one had seen something like that. So wherever they went, people were rushing out, looking in the sky. Has doom come? What is it? You know, it was quite extraordinary. 1785, long time ago. Um, but they had a good landing, and she became the first ever woman to, to fly. And it was only, as I said, 18 months after the very first French people had got off the ground. So I think one of the things that you really spoke about there was the fact that almost women being used as a bit of a gimmick as it being adding to the spectacle adding to the interest and the intrigue of the event could you tell us a little bit more about that this was very much the case and right through history women have been used like this um because the accepted norm for a woman especially in britain society and i suppose most of the society right across the globe um the woman's place was in the home they looked after the children did the cooking around the household and they didn't really get involved in, in these extraordinary adventures, certainly. Exploration, there were a few of them. Um, in aviation, it really was a man's world. And yet British women, especially, all the way through, you had one or two who were standing out and getting involved. And each one of them had the most amazing story. And Queen Victoria actually wrote once, um, I think it was about in 1880, she wrote a letter saying how she disapproved of using women as gibbics in, in flying displays, because in those days they were taking them up underneath balloons, sitting on trapezes, waving flags and doing all sorts of gimmicks to attract crowds and paying, for, you know, fee-paying crowds. And a lot of, there was a lot of opposition against that, and as I said, including Queen Victoria. But there were still, women were still being used as a display. So that's where the women in the book are all different, because each one of them actually played their part in aviation. I think one of the characters you really draw out for this part of the story is Emily Devoy. Could you tell us a bit more about her? Yes, I would I would actually have loved to have met Emily because she had a phenomenal, well, just an extraordinary life. Um, she, she was born in the late 1860s. Her parents lived in a poor area of London. It was adjacent to Agar Town, I think the name was. It's, it was near London St Pancras anyway. And there was one, let me read you this description because I love it. And it said, this is on the historical descriptions of Agar Town, said, it was one of the most rundown areas of the city with wretched hovels and roads a complete bog of mud and filth. There was no sewage system and a lot of sickness. I mean, that just that phrase, it gives you an idea of where she was brought up, doesn't it? Real, real pretty you know, poor conditions. But anyway, it got worse. Um, because then, I think it was, um, it was the time of the railways were expanding everywhere. And to make room for London's new St Pancras, and I think it was King's Cross, it decided to simply demolish Agar Town. Um, I mean, to me, I, I think to modern society, it would be appalling. In those days, it was quite common. I think my research showed that overall, I think the railway clearances evicted something like 60,000 people. Anyway, and Emily and her family was just one of them, chucked out, nowhere to go. And the father tried to do all sorts of things, but it didn't work. And, and little Emily at three was put into a workhouse. And that, that was the end of her family life. 
I mean, it must have been so scary. Anyway, that was her background. So she asked me, and I suppose you're a bit feisty to survive all that. I don't know if all the kids survived it, I suppose, somehow. But anyway, um, and then she, it was a long story, but she met her sister's husband, who was involved in ballooning. And um, he got it because he was a coachman and his employee had been involved in ballooning. He took it over. So it's a long, very involved story. But anyway, she discovered ballooning. It was just in its infancy then. And, um, and liked the idea and was showing a, a real interest, not just a, a sort of distant, oh, that's nice interest. And so he became involved in teaching her a little bit more about it, and she showed more and more interest. Anyway, long story, um, she ended up sitting under a trapeze under one of his balloons, giving a display in Cheltenham, and they went up to three 3,000 feet, and then she jumped off with a parachute. And the parachute opened, she was fine, she landed in the park, and she became Britain's first ever female parachutist. And, of course, probably one of the first in the world. And after that, she went and went on and gave displays. Her husband died in an accident, and she went on doing her own displays. And, I mean, well-organised, collecting money, very, you know, quite a good businesswoman. And yet, look at her background. Isn't It was in her, wasn't it? It was just an extraordinary thing, really, just another exceptional British woman who got involved in aviation. I think there's almost another side to it there, but you think you bring in the level of societal concern for women getting involved in these early experiments, these early aviation experiments. Could you perhaps explain what actually was it that concerned them? In ballooning, and the ballooning, early ballooning again, which is the early aspect of all flight, I suppose, um, it was wonderful because they were they were sort of small baskets that went up under these big balloons. And women, if they got into a basket, they had to stand in close proximity to the man. And that really wasn't acceptable. And so a lot, there was opposition against that, against women shouldn't be seen to be going in a balloon with a man because they have to stand so close to them. Um, it's just wonderful. And, of course, clothes were the other thing because, I mean, Letitia Sage on her first balloon flight, um, she was. She went up. I mean, she dressed carefully for the event. She put on a really lovely long plum dress and a big bodice and and her makeup on, which was I think you know very basic powder, but some rouge on her cheeks. And then she went up with a big hat, and it was all about clothes. And even a, a part of the book that I absolutely love, and it only takes a small section because I was very. It was very hard to find out much about her, but it was a girl called Rose, Rose Spencer. And in fact, she was the first ever woman to fly a powered aircraft in the world. And it's so fascinating. But Rose Spencer, she's just a typical Victorian woman on the edge of the Edwardian era. And sort of early, just just the turn of the century, she was married to a man who was experimenting because he was a great believer in flight. I mean, we're talking about some years before the Wright brothers took off. And um, her husband, Stanley Spencer, was very keen to show that you could do powered flight and he'd built this, this Zeppelin style sort of airship, very small. And he and she helped him, and it was at home in Islington in London. And then he was doing tests with it down at Crystal Palace in South London. And he did a couple of tests and they modified it. And he did a couple more tests. And she went down with her little girl and to watch it. And I don't know, again, there's no way to know the what led up to this. But anyway, she stepped into onto the platform. And um, took hold of the controls. The engine was revving away. And it was just wired control. I mean, we're talking about 1902 here, 1901. And, um, and she pulled the wires and sorted it all out anyway and took off. And she took off in this airship and flew about half an hour around South London at about 300 feet and then made a very successful landing. And this was an extraordinary thing for, for you know, a woman to fly an aircraft in those days well before the Wright brothers got off the ground. And poor Rose Spencer, totally unknown. And so, uh, you know, hopefully a few things will be altered now. I've noticed Google are already altering all their records. But anyway, that aside, she was wearing a long Edwardian skirt and a big, you know, sort of Edwardian shawl-type top. And the clothes were, were... You didn't change your clothes when you did something extraordinary in those days. So from this, what can we really tell about the background of some of these ladies, these women? There's very little to link all these women. I was all the way through, I was waiting for to be able to think, oh, well, this, this is what's driven them. This is what makes a, a woman, British woman, any woman, go out and do something extraordinary. And yet there's no common denominator right through. That They come from such different backgrounds, such diverse sort of attitudes and, and 
society. It, and a, a good one is, um, and another lovely story in the book, which I love, um, is the two Lady Marys who met in Africa. They ended up in Khartoum in 1927, probably. And again, very early flying, biplanes, open cockpits, that sort of thing. And um, and they were both very, very early pilots in Britain, but they both had a dream they wanted to fly. Um, Lady Mary Heath was, um, she was born in Ireland, but became sort of British because she lived in Britain and, and married or several British husbands. But um, but she wanted to fly because it brought her fame. She wanted to do something different. Lady Mary Barry was Mary Bailey was at the opposite end, and she just wanted to fly quietly because she loved flying. But they came from very different backgrounds. Mary Heath, her father killed her mother, and then she made a she married an elderly wealthy man when she was younger. I'm sure it was for love, but she inherited lots of money from him because he was quite old, and that helped her to fly. Um, the other Mary at the same time was Mary Bailey, who was brought up in castles with footmen and had a one, was presented at court and had a wonderful background. Um, and the two of them were two keen flyers who were flying out of a place called Stag Lane in London, little airport there. Anyway, and for various reasons, um, they both decided they wanted to fly across Africa. And Mary Heath, um, with her third husband, it was, another elderly, wealthy man. I'm not making any judgment here, but I'll tell you the facts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on her third elderly husband, also had a lot of money, she bought a plane and took it down to Cape Town and was going to fly up through Cape Town. Mary Bailey, who was looking after her four children in, in London, in a quiet little family, but had a, a wealthy husband, um, was flying and decided she wanted to fly down to Cape Town from London because her husband had business interests down there. So while Lady Mary Heath was in Cape Town flying up to London. Mary Bailey left London to fly down to Cape Town. This is an extraordinary thing. I mean, what a coincidence. They weren't doing it to upset each other. It's just one had, it's just how it worked out. Anyway, and um, and they met in Khartoum, I think it's 1927. And the two Lady Mary <laughs> Marys, both pilots, chotted in in their little old biplanes and came down into the middle of Africa. And, of course, there was a British um, residence there. And um, and their concept of seeing these two female pilots must have been extraordinary. But it was just, again, an illustration that they came from very different backgrounds. Were there any particular occasions when women were particularly keen to hide their identities or cover up something about their past so they could participate in the aviation community? I think that was quite common. Uh, the difference, you know, again, we're looking at Victorian era, Edwardian era, and, and just more recently, but it wasn't just money that divided society, but class was very rigid. And it's in a way that I think today, although everyone's fighting for equality, but we, we can't imagine just how rigid it was in those days. And, and there was one, one case, a girl called Silver Boyden, and she was the first British woman to jump out of a plane with a packed parachute. She actually saw some parachuting taking place, testing, in Richmond Park in London. And we're talking about 1917, 18, the end of the First World War here, that era. And she looked at it and she thought she'd quite like to have a go. And so she thought it'd be something different, I suppose. And so she had a go and she got involved and she met a man called Major Ord Lease. And he was a very interesting character, quite famous. He'd been on the Shackleton exhibition and... He was came from a very different background from Silver. But she she linked up with him and he took her on to help. They were demonstrating the British Guardian parachute, um, which they were trying to sell and make, make all aviation, including the RAF pilots, carry them for safety. The RAF was still um, not sure about the cost and not sure whether it was the best parachute to, to buy. So there was a little prevarication there. But um, anyway, so Silver and Major Ordlease started demonstrating these parachutes and um, and were doing very well demonstrating it. And the Americans were interested, Canadians were interested, as well as the British military were interested in possibly buying them for, for their pilots. And so it's going well, and it looked like it was going to be a good business and lots of Guardian parachutes would be sold. And they were invited to demonstrate the parachutes in America. And this caused a problem because suddenly um, Silver Boyden, who'd had a sort of background hidden in a way from 
major orderlies, hadn't said a lot about it, but had put on certain airs and graces and um, and joined in his society, um, had to then get a passport. And all their passports had only just come in, they're only just single folded over, they they're nevertheless had been introduced. And so she had to admit that her proper name was Ellen Pothecary. And of course, from that, orderlies wanted to know, well, what was your background then? Where does that come from? And she had to admit that she was, she was the daughter of a poor carpenter who'd brought up in Twickenham. And it was obviously a great source of embarrassment to her that she had a very different background. It's really, you know, class was just such a big thing. What can we say actually inspired these ladies? Is there a definitive answer? Or is it just the fascination with flights? I think the I think the one common thing was that they were all in in a quiet way, but they were all ambitious to improve their lives. And you can improve your life at any level, I suppose, and at any time in history. And out of poverty, if Emily DeVoy, for instance, brought up in a workhouse, anything that would get her out of that probably inspired her. And with Mary Bailey, who who was and, and some of the others who were brought up with quite considerable wealth. Um, they still wanted to do something different, do something a little bit better, maybe for interest, not fame or money necessarily, but they wanted to to do something inspirational, do something exciting and, and feel they'd made something of their life. And I think this was the thing that drove all these women, that they really wanted to make the most of their lives rather than just go along with the norm. How far then could these women achieve their goals their ambitions on their own and was this a thing that did change over time it's hard isn't it because aviation is a funny area to be in and it's not something that you can just do out of the blue waking up one day and think i'm going to get into aviation so it is always a partnership whether it's a group of men group of women or a group of men and women women and men so it's always been a team effort i suppose um for women being able to do things on their own i think probably uh, it was starting in the 20s and 30s when women were becoming a little bit more independent. I mean, Amy Johnson, when she flew to Australia, um, she wouldn't have done it with Jack, who was the big engineer at Stag Lane, who helped her through, or, I mean, lots of help. So it, it, was, st- it was still male-dominated. I'd say probably it was the Second World War that really changed things because that was when a lot of women were joined up um, thanks to Pauline Gower and some of the other very brave early flyers of that time, they joined up the um, ATA, the Auxiliary Transport Airport, and um, they flew lots and lots of planes without any proper training. They were switching from plane to plane, just helping the war effort. And I think I think that was really the biggest breakthrough, and they could realise that actually women could not only do as well as men, but in some cases they could do better. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She was the talk of the Victorian era because she did have a few accidents. Uh, She did land on a few roofs in London. She did cause a bit of damage. And she did nearly wipe out the Crystal Palace at the London exhibition, which which was wonderful because the balloon she took off had a slight leak and she just couldn't clear it properly. I think she cleared the top of it by about a couple of feet. So it was nearly a very dramatic flight. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. If it was more of a team effort, do we see an emergence of perhaps of women's flying clubs or societies or at least female membership to societies more generally? Yeah, uh, this, that was interesting as well, because women were very involved, as I said, right from the beginning. And um, but again, mostly as partners who joined in maybe a little bit, but went really taking control of doing their own own thing, I suppose, how one describes it. But then as you get into the 20s, you get people like, oh, Winifred Brown. I covered her, gave her a full chapter in the book. So I just loved her. I mean, oh, I'd love to meet her. She, she, Winifred was lovely. She was, um, I think she was born at the turn of the century and was in the twen- uh, growing up in the 20s in, in just north of Manchester. And she was a very indulged child. Um, she was her slightly older parents. Her dad was a wealthy butcher. And she was 10 stone when she was 10 years old. So she was a little bit overweight and she was teased for her weight in those days. And um, it didn't worry her. She was a bubbly, happy, really happy girl. And she sounds like she had a wonderful childhood. Her parents devoted themselves to her. It was just wonderful. And she grew up in Manchester and all was going well. And her father bought her a uh, car and then she met a boyfriend. And so her father bought her a little plane. A boyfriend was interested in aviation. And so she mentioned about it. And so daddy bought her a plane. Well, why not? So she got involved in aviation in a very easy way. Um, But what was interesting with her was that um, she was told she was flying a film for a film company and just did something. She had to land in a field for them. They said it's fine. fine. It's been weighed out, measured out, everything for her. And um, but landing in the field, she accidentally killed a boy. And that changed her a lot. So from this frivolous young flapper 20s girl, um, she then became a very serious pilot, but she still had her little bubbly personality, but it had made her mature. And then anyway, she went up to, to various air meets and she saw an air race in Blackpool and thought, oh, I'd like to enter that. And this is still um, late sort of 1920s, a very, very handful of British pilots, that was all there was. And so she decided to enter. Well, her club, the Lancashire Aero Club, were very much against it because they thought, oh, woman, she'll just let us down. She'll give us a bad reputation. Don't enter. Anyway, she entered and she flew down. It was in summer, July 30. She flew down to Hamworthy, which is in London, Hamworth. I mean, not Hamworthy, Hamworth. And um, there was an air club there and it was very quite well-to-do and, and a lot of pilots went there. And the night before the big air race that she'd entered, all the parts were invited to a party and to stay overnight at this luxurious clubhouse. But um, Winifred wasn't allowed to. And they, they said, there's no space for you. They didn't say why, but, you know, this northern, slightly overweight girl from Manchester just didn't, didn't fit the image of the young daredevil male pilots. So she put up at a local pub. Anyway, she went the next day and, um, and got in her plane. And, of course, it was a bit daunting for the poor girl. Once she was in the cockpit and the engine was going and she felt at home, so she said, well, I'll give it a go and I'll do my best, try not to embarrass myself too much. Anyway, it was a, it was a race around Britain. And she she started off, went down to Hamble, the Solent, and then over to Bristol. And they landed at Bristol and refueled. And someone said, oh, you've overtaken a couple of planes. And she thought, oh, that's good. And I don't know how many entries there were, quite a lot, 60, 80, I don't know. I mean, it was a big race. Anyway, on she went. And um, then she went up to... They went up north and then they landed at Manchester for another refuel and check. And she'd overtaken a couple more planes. And 
Then they were all given bad news because the next stop was Newcastle and they had to fly over the Pennines and their low cloud had come in. So everyone had to reroute right round the north of the Pennines, a much longer route. And um, Winifred thought, well, hang on a minute, because this was her area. This is where she'd learned to fly. She knew the skies. She'd flown there a lot. And so she worked out a new route that she could go through what's called the Woodford Pass, which is due east of Manchester, and cut through the Pennines over to the east coast or the east of England. And she looked at it and she thought, I wonder. And anyway, they took off and she, as the planes all headed north of the new route, she turned east and headed to the Woodford Pass. And the cloud was getting lower and lower and she was heading towards it. And um, and she was thinking, mm, I might have to turn around, I might have to turn around. And she headed on. And then the cloud was sort of getting thicker and she was looking down and the ground was beginning to disappear in mist. And by that time, in an open cockpit, flying hurtly through the air, wind rushing at you, and suddenly your visibility is going, it's, it's very dangerous. And in those days, it was very dangerous. But, um, but she sort of just headed on a little bit more, just holding on, holding on. And suddenly the ground started to clear again. She could see the ground. And then suddenly she was through and she could see the ground. The clouds had lifted again and she was on the east side of the Pennines. And so she whizzed up to Newcastle, checked in, did her thing, took off again. And, um, and she was well in the lead. And she, she sort of tried, and as she landed at Newcastle to refuel and check, they said, you're in the lead, you're in the lead. But she thought, well, yeah, okay. But there were a lot of fast planes coming up behind her. And so off she went. So she went straight down, back down to London to navigate. And in these days, navigation was often fl- following railways. I mean, we are talking early flying still here, following railways, following tracks, following roads to make sure you're on course. Anyway, she, her navigation was immaculate, and she came back to Hamworth. And um, and just as she saw the, the finish, um, another plane was behind her. So she put her little plane into a big dive and it went over 100 miles an hour. Everything was rattling and shaking, but she thought, well, I'll just do my best at the end. Anyway, and landed. And she was fine. She landed. She thought, phew, well, at least I haven't disgraced myself. And then people started running up and she found she'd actually won the race. And of course, she was astounded, but everyone was astounded. No one could believe a woman, a woman had won this race. And uh, she got a letter from the king and uh, just amazing celebrations. Of course, what was funny is that that day the, the organisers then invited her back to the clubhouse. Of course you can stay. Will you stay tonight? And she went back to her pub and she said no. But that, I think that was the first of, of women really showing how, you know, we're independent, we can do what we want and you don't have to fuss around us too much. Look what we can do. And it was, it was, it's just a lovely story and, again, a very happy ending, you know. Were these pioneering firsts always spectacular events or were there some that were perhaps less well-known and went undetected, unknown about? I mean, some, you know, like the first two, I suppose, go through the sand barrier, those sort of things that are fairly predictable. And Helen Harmon, who was the first woman to go into space, um, they were fairly sort of well-known. I think Joan Meeking and Naomi Heron-Maxwell were two interesting people and and totally well-known and didn't do anything dramatic, but they did prove things uh, and show what could be done for for men as well as women. Joan Meeking was a a pilot, um, but a glider pilot, and she she just loved gliding. Her parents didn't want her to do it, but she insisted in the end and got her own way. (laughs) And she went over to Germany and learnt at a very good school over there and was taught how to loop. And she loved looping gliders. And she came back to the UK and was looping all over the place. I think she did over 20-something glider loops over Bristol at some point and and just did incredible things. And it wasn't a, a massive breakthrough, but it just showed what could be done with a glider as well as what a woman could do with a glider. She was the first to glide over the channel, although she was towed. But again, that wasn't easy because, you know, towing a, being towed isn't easy. You're up and down and, and you have to keep on top of things. So that was good. And then also a partner who she knew, they, they both sort of did things together. They both sort of flew in a flying circus together in the 30s. But um, was Naomi Heron-Maxwell. And um, she, she was an interesting woman because she was, again, gliding. She started off parachuting. Well, she started off flying and couldn't afford it. And then she went to parachuting, which was she found she could earn money to do. Um, and she was one of the first to do free fall, but she was stopped doing that because they thought it was too dangerous and she had to pull off a plane. And, of course, these are still days where could you breathe in free fall? You know, I mean, this is when you're falling down before you've opened the parachute. And, and anyway, and then she went on to gliding. And she learned again in Germany because Germany was the main area for gliding in those days. Um, but um, but she, she was... Um, 
she was an extraordinary woman because she sort of just kept going. And it was a war. She she was going to Germany in the late 1930s and she could see, She I think she went to actually a, a display by Goering or something. And she was well aware that Germany was changing. And at one point she, she went to a gliding school and found that girls weren't allowed because all to go anymore because um, all the courses had to go to men because Hitler had said that we need the youth to learn to fly. So anyway, but she, she got going and um, and she managed to get, which was in those days, the big, the main, I think it was called the Silver Sea Gliding Certificate, which was the highest one you could get at that time. And she did that in Germany by, you had to get a certain height, you had to be guaranteed a rate of climb, you had to do a distance flight and one or two things like that. And it was quite tricky, quite long distance. And she did it all. So, and she was the first, you know, first to do that, to get to that level in gliding. Now, that wasn't a big achievement. It wasn't dramatic achievement. It was a big achievement. It wasn't a dramatic achievement, but it was, um, it was still setting the scene that women could be right at the top. I think we could bring it back to perhaps one of the more notable first one that our listeners are probably quite interested to hear about, which is who could we say was the first? British female pilot? Well, you see, this is where, you know, you get into this book. Do you mean a pilot as a pilot flying something or do you mean a pilot flying a proper aircraft as we know it with wings? Oh, tell us about both. I'd love to hear about both. Both, right. Okay, yeah, okay, right. Well, the first woman pilot, and that's flying any aircraft at all, whether it's engine, wings, whatever shape, was another, oh, I love her. You see, they're all great. Um, Was a woman called Margaret Graham. And um, I must say, as I researched this book, it was such fun. I, I honestly loved writing it because it's just all these characters were coming to life. And each, as I said, each one had the most dramatic story. You just couldn't have made it up. And Margaret Graham um, came to London, married a, woman, a man who was quite involved in the occult. And then he became involved in ballooning and she got involved. Again, originally her interest came through him. But, um, but she was without doubt. He was a dreamer and she was the driving force. She turned out to be a terrific businesswoman and um, and they gave de- ballooning displays all around Britain. That was their business. And it, it earned quite a lot of money. Um, but she, she was the pushy one, without doubt, and, and got the thing going. And then they had an accident and so she took over for a bit. And then he was thrown in prison um, for debt. And... Um, so good old Margaret Graham, didn't, didn't, she had children. She thought, well, I'll run the business. So she, she, she'd done a couple of flights. So she took over and she was, she was um, piloting the flights. And, um, and she took over and she was an amazing woman. It turned out to be a great pilot. The very first time she flew, it was from, um, I think it was a place, it was just North London, and took off and she did a very short flight and just skimmed a church and ended up at the back of a pub in Islington on a vegetable patch and actually that was the very first flight or pilot so for a woman pilot it was the first flight by a woman pilot and um, she ended up in the vegetable patch and there was no no applause for that and in fact she was taken to court for damaging vegetables so it wasn't great it wasn't a great start for British women pilots but she was the very first pilot she was the talk of the Victorian era because she did have a few accidents. Uh, she did land on a few roofs in London. She did cause a bit of damage. And she did nearly wipe out the Crystal Palace at the London exhibition, which was which was wonderful because the balloon she took off had a slight leak and she just couldn't clear it properly. I think she cleared the top of it by about a couple of feet. So it was nearly a very dramatic flight, but she did get across it. But she was the first ever proper woman pilot. Um, but then the first woman pilot of planes as we know it um and here's this dispute because you you google first woman pilot and you'll get i don't know amelia Earhart, who's an american or first british woman pilot you still get amelia Earhart, or you'll get yvonne pope who was a a, a a recent commercial pilot um or eventually if you keep googling you might get the name hilda hewlett who was officially the first pilot but she was only the first licensed pilot. The first British woman to fly a plane was actually another amazing woman called Edith Cook. And she was the daughter of a confectioner in, in Ipswich in Suffolk. And that would have been a great place to be brought up in those days because it was a thriving town and having a dad making loads of sweets, I think it must have been good fun. 
Well, anyway, she decided first she wanted to parachute, so she did all the parachute displays and learned a lot about it. She was technically minded. I mean, today she'd have probably become some sort of aviation engineer or something, but in those days there wasn't that opportunity for her. And so she she learned a bit, and then she it was when Blériot flew in Britain, and in 1909, 1910 was a very exciting era for British flight. It was just beginning to take off. And she then saw, I think she probably saw Blériot's plane that was displayed in Selfridges in London, and she decided she wanted to fly. There were no British pilots at the time. Well, she saved her money up, and then at the end of 1909, she took herself off with her little case on steam train to the Channel, got the ferry across, steam train to Paris, steam train down to Pau in the south of France, which was recognised as an aviation centre in those days. And, um, and she took herself there and signed on for a course to learn to fly. And that, was again, was pretty astonishing thing to do. There weren't any other women pilots learning there at the time, I think, the instructors there were a bit bemused because they really wanted men who were happy to get covered in oil, happy to do the engines. They really didn't think a woman would do that. They had Anzani engines. They had, she had to learn how to prep it. You know, it was quite a – the planes were made of sort of wood and wires and it, it was a lot of practical involvement in learning to fly in those days. And anyway, she did it all. And just as 1910 broke, I think early January – she went solo and took off the ground and flew and then continued to fly really for a few weeks till she came back to the UK. If she'd registered and taken an aero test, she'd have been the first ever woman to get a pilot's licence. But she didn't. And I think that's because she was saving money because it cost money to make fly, to do a flight test. And I think she came back to the UK because her pl- plan was then to buy a plane and um, fly the channel. So she was an amazing woman and completely unheralded. No one's heard of her. And um, and unfortunately, she died. She had an accident and died. But if she hadn't, she'd, she'd have been an international name and, and still today recognised. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> you spoke a little bit there about almost training and that side of things. Was training usual? Did it become more of a formalised expectation over time? Uh, I think it was the introduction of aeroplanes as we know them, a fixed-wing flight that brought official training. Um, Before then, it was because with balloons and even airships, it was a little bit haphazard. You went into the air, did your best, and if you survived, you did another one. It was was a little bit – I mean, there was training, but in no way it was official. It was learning on site, learning from others. And it was the introduction, I think, of – fixed wing and using engines, I think, involved more technical knowledge and that brought about proper tests and proper examination and then proper training as well, which, which of course, was quite important. Throughout our chat, you've sort of spoken a little bit about near misses and almost disasters. Are there any stories out there of perhaps failures or tragedies that have come through of women in flight? Well, yes, I mean, you you don't want to dwell on the disasters. And luckily enough, most of the early British women, and, and indeed across the world, really, they they did survive. Uh, I mean, there were a few awful accidents, of course. And in fact, um, Jane Stocks, who's the second woman to fly in Britain, um, she had a dreadful accident that no one thought she'd survive. They went up, she went up with a, a man who had invented, and it was a very clever invention, when balloons were first flying um they used to hit the ground and they'd they'd bounce off and do have all sorts of problems and this englishman came up with the idea of having an event at the top so if you pulled once you landed if you pulled this special cord it released a gap in the top of the fabric of the balloon all the hot air or the gas would go out and you wouldn't be dragged along the ground by the wind you'd land quickly and it was a brilliant idea having this vent and so um, he decided he wanted to test it. He got it working. And Jane Stocks, a, a Londoner, went up with him. And they were they had a nice flight. They went across Croydon and they were just going down south um, a little bit further. And he decided it was time to think about coming down. And so he was going to let a little bit of air out just to stop the balloon going up to try and start a descent. And um, he he pulled the line. He pulled the wrong line. And instead of just letting out a little air, he pulled this opening vent, which would 
quickly deflate the balloon so that it wouldn't drag on ground. That was his new invention. But it wasn't meant to be pulled up in the air. And he pulled it up at, I think they were probably about 2,000 feet. And, of course, the balloon just collapsed. And down they went in an enormous crash, hit a tree and hit the ground. And Thomas, the um, man she was with, died instantly. Jane had the most awful injuries. And um, and no one thought she'd survive. But she did pull through and she flew again. And so I suppose... You know, there were incidents like that where where people did happen. But generally, I'd say most of the early women flies did pretty well. And, you know, there weren't that many bad accidents. How do we see female participation in flight and aviation? How did it affect their reputations and their daily lives? And is this something that perhaps has changed over time? Has it become more accepted? It's turned completely round. And... Possibly, I mean, I think it's thanks to a name that most people still know, Amy Johnson, because before then there was still, oh, these women are trying to make a display of themselves. They're making a name for themselves. What are they doing this? You know, get back to to being quiet and and sensible. And there was very much still that attitude right up beyond the First World War, really. And, And then in 1930, along came Amy Johnson, and in all fairness, she wasn't the best natural pilot. She took ages to get a licence. Um, on her first cross-country, she got lost, her first cross-country test. And it was almost accidental that she decided to, well, she did the trip to Australia. Um, that's, that's another bit of a long story. But anyway, she'd never flown overseas before. She'd never been overseas before. And um, she decided to fly to Australia. And, of course, all the eyes of the world were watching her because it was such a big thing to do. And when she took off, she had numerous adventures going going east as she hit mountains and flew into the monsoon. The monsoon came early for her, which was really unfortunate and caused her all sorts of problems. And, of course, the media loved it. And this picture of this poor girl in her open cockpit still with the rain battering on her goggles, flying high, trying to clear mountains, no idea where she was in heavy monsoon. I mean, just grab the public's imagination, as you can imagine. And on she went and on she went. And then at one point in Indonesia, um, she put she got a bit lost. She was running out of petrol and uh, running out of fuel and she had to put down and she couldn't find the airfield and she landed in a fairly remote clearing. I mean, she did very well. And um, but there was no way to get messages back. And so for two or three days, where's the missing air girl? So it added to the spectacle. And then finally, after numerous adventures and the most extraordinary flying, really, and, and I have to say quite a bit of luck, but good luck to her. She made it to to Darwin and um, and landed there. And I think that was a big turnaround that then suddenly, look, here are women are doing their own thing. And they're not, they shouldn't be going back to doing something. They're not trying to make a spectacle. She had shown enormous courage, enormous resilience, and um, and some quite dramatic flying. And after then, I think women were accepted as, as proper pilots. And then, of course, what they did with the ATA in the war, flying every aircraft you could imagine, from Spitfires and Harringtons, Wellingtons, they were just moving from plane to plane. And by then, you know, God, women could fly planes, that's for sure. Were these women always recognised for their achievements? And sort of how long did fame last? <laughs> yes, because going right back to the end of Tisha Sage, who all she wanted was fame. And she was, she was wondered when she did her first ever flight, she was talk of the town. I mean, she was famous everywhere for about six months. And then that was it. And 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 the poor girl, she went back to making costumes for the theatre. I guess long-term she must have thought, well, I did at least achieve a bit of fame. It certainly wasn't long-lasting. And the fact also is that the book, you go through the names in the book, and while some of the stories are dramatic, how many names will anybody know as commonplace? And yet, you know, they, they should be, because a lot of them did the most amazing things. So I guess fame doesn't last, really, or none of, none of the women, early women did. And even Helen Sharman, who was our first woman to go into space, and she, she did, it was remarkable. Her story is remarkable, how she went to Russia and, and learnt Russian so that she could participate. That alone, I thought, was a pretty good thing to do. And then she flew up to the Mir space station and spent a whole week there. And it was just fantastic what she did. But even her name, you know, you ask who was Britain's first woman in space, mm, not sure. So they're, they're, not, they're not well known, these women, but I think they, at least they've got a record now. 
did these women often put their story down themselves or was this something more recognised in the press? Actually, that's a really interesting question because I'd say almost most of the women were so involved in wanting to do what they did for what for their own purposes, none of them put anything down. I think they are the t- site today that would not have been on Facebook. They wouldn't have been doing their social media page and their influencing. They'd have, they'd have just gone quietly on with what they were doing because they wanted to do what they wanted to do and they weren't doing it for public acclaim. They were, like Letitia Sage again, there were a few of them that were doing it because they wanted to make money or they wanted the acclaim. Mary Heath was one, the one who flew for Africa. All she wanted was fame and glory. I mean, that was absolutely her driving force. But generally a lot of them were either doing it for an own personal reason to see if they could do it as a a personal challenge, or they were just doing it because they loved it. Yeah, so so I think that actually is what, now you've mentioned that, that is one actually common denominator, that none of them really were glory seekers. They were all just quiet achievers. Aside from being pilots or passengers or parachutists, three Ps there, How else do we see women get involved in the wider industry as it grew and as it developed? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, as I said, British women have been involved right from the beginning, which, which, which is odd, but again, just demonstrates how, how slow it was, I think, for things to change. And also, again, if you look at society, women did have to look after children. They did have to stay at home, a lot of them, to look after how someone had to, and the men weren't going to do it. So um, so it was women. So it's, I think it's evolved, women becoming involved in the wider area of aviation. It's like, I mean, nowadays you'll have fantastic women, aeronautical engineers designing spaceships, NASA's full of women. You know, they're everywhere. And, of course, Helen Sharma's been up in space. So um, we haven't got one on the moon yet. That'll be the next, I guess, woman on the moon. British woman on the moon, of course. But... Uh, I think possibly it's been a hard slog to get women to that equal area, but the same as in every other area of life, really. I think this almost brings me to my final point, which is, are there any particular standout characters to you or any that have particularly inspired you or impassioned you in this subject? That's a difficult question because in each way, I think they're all very inspirational They've all wanted to achieve slightly different things. They've all had different obstacles put in their way. Um, Hilda Hewlett, I mean, she didn't, she she was brought up very much in a traditional family and brought up four children. It wasn't until her 40s that she even thought about flying. And yet she became the first British woman to get a pilot's licence. So she was very inspirational to show that older women could, you know, still do things. And then you've got others who were fighting, like Winifred, who was fighting male domination in the sport and just desperately trying to force her way. And she did it by winning and beating all the other best pilots of the day. I think every one of them is inspirational, which is why I've included them, because I think they've all got individual stories in the most very different but, but fabulous circumstances. It's just, it's just lovely. That was Sally Smith. Her book, Magnificent Women and Their Flying Machines, is out now, published by The History Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.